Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 194, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. How a teacher's quick thinking allowed for a student to walk in graduation, and a shocking report about what happened when a Florida school district shared student data with local law enforcement. Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, ransomware is a serious concern for organizations throughout the United States, and school districts are a prime target. Our guests tell us what your school district should be doing to keep the data safe. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. I say principal, kind of funny, because are you still a principal? Tell us, what's going on in your world? (laughs) Well, technically, I am. I'm closing out the 2021 school year. You know, the fiscal year runs July 1 to June 30th, but I have accepted a new position as director of curriculum and instruction for our school district. So there's a lot happening over the next two weeks what, <laughs> as I transition. What an honor, though. I mean, so you're you're moving to the, uh, the big district office, huh? I am. And one of the most important things for me, there's two things, is one, um, to ensure that our department is seen as support for principals and teachers throughout the district. But also, I am not interested in the whole you know, rigmarole that goes with going to the big house. I want to be in school. I still need to be connected to um, instruction. And I still need to see little people because at the end of the day, that is a part of my passion. And that's what's driven me all of these years. I'm wrapping up 23 years in education. And it's always been about doing what's best for children. So I don't want to go sit at a desk on high. I want to be down in the trenches and helping. We're excited for you. I mean, uh, I think this is great news, and I think it's just going to be another perspective that you're going to have uh, to bring to the show. So I, I think that's that's all good news <laughs> for for us personally as listeners. Uh, but but same to you. You know, I mean, th- like, do you have any big ideas or apprehensions about about the role change? Um, I'm really excited. I'm really grateful. Of course, there's apprehension. Just being humble. I'm nervous. Right. You know, I have a lot of thoughts running through my head. You know, when you're um, coming in behind someone that's been in their position for multiple years, you know, you think about, well, I hope that I'm as you know supportive or that I provide the knowledge and expertise. But at the same time, um, God would never purpose me into a position and not equip me right. um, to be able to serve. And so I am thrilled. Yes, I have some ideas and some things that I'd like to um, within our district, obviously under the direction and supervision of our superintendent. But I'm just really excited to see what we do in the future as we try to um, move our district um, into a high-performing district. I don't doubt that you're well-equipped. You're going to do a fantastic job. Congratulations, Christine. I think that's that's great news. Thank you, my friend. The uh, story that kind of 
made me angry and happy and sad all at the same time recently uh, passed. It actually came out earlier this month in early June. Um, and, and I think you had read it as well. And it was out of our neighbors over in Louisiana. It's um, I think I'm saying this right. It's Butte, Louisiana. Um, it's mm-hmm. Hanville High School. And it has to do with a senior who arrived at the local convention center where his graduation was being held um, in late May. And a school representative, um, which we always seem to hear these type of stories, blocked him from entering because she said he couldn't wear the shoes that he was wearing with his graduation gown. And um, he was really upset. Like, he wasn't going to be able to get in there. His whole family was inside the arena or the convention center, I guess, to watch him graduate. And he ends up going to kind of sit on a bench, I think, outside of the the center. And another teacher... um, walks up to him as he's embarrassed and humiliated. And this teacher who knows him is like, Hey, you know what's going on? Um, this other teacher, his, he was there. Um, his daughter is, was graduating that same day as well. And, um, it were about five minutes from the doors closing. And this other teacher starts talking to this kid and realizes he can't get in because of shoes. And he has the quick thinking, brilliant solution, which is what? Give him his own shoes, right? Like selfless act. That is so awesome. Like, so here this teacher is, and it's such an, it's such an easy solution. It's, I don't know that I would have thought of it, like standing there. I don't know how I would have reacted. So like kudos to the quick thinking, uh, and the innovative yeah, thinking of this teacher to kudos say. Kudos to him, but my heart goes out to people who have rigid thinking. Right. Um, one of the things that we always have, have thought about, and you know, I've been on the middle school level where we have eighth grade promotions. I've served as 12th grade principals. So high school graduations, And yes, we go over a particular dress code because we don't want them to come in there in something that's inappropriate and shower shoes. But at the end of the day, you if you have the appropriate relationships with your students, you should already know who those kids are that might be in a bind. And I'm going to tell you some of the things that we've done in the past, working with our PTO and working just, you know, with a tight knit staff. We already knew who those kids might be. And so we already had collected up dress shirts, um, ties, you know, belts, and just having conversations with kids and parents. Hey, does 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 Johnny have everything that he needs? You know, my I have like several sons at home and they grow so fast. And right. can I help you with a pair of shoes? We never wanted a child to worry about being dressed appropriately. And we never said, no, you can't wear tennis shoes. I mean, we we were very specific about shower shoes, one was safety. Um, issue trying to you know walk in in a, in a stadium or whatnot but we just band it together every single year knowing those at risk or those kids who are you know um socially social economically disadvantaged and we just put things together and it breaks my heart to know that after battling 13 years and here you are you made it for whatever the requirements were according to your department of education in your high school and the only reason you can't receive that honor in front of your loved ones and your friends is because you didn't own a pair of dress shoes. Right. Like I'm just really hurting in my heart for the teacher or administrator or who, whomever told that child they couldn't come in. Yeah. Who yeah, does that? Yeah. And it's kind of like uh, you, that person might be angry, you know, like about just other things in life. And they felt like they were the enforcer there and they were doing the right thing. And like you said, they were thinking rigidly and, and we have to think you know, uh, more open-minded and saying like, what's, what's the situation of this child? So uh, I really agree with you there. And it, 
I love that, you know, you guys think, oh, we need to have extra pairs of shoes or ties or stuff for kids that are graduating. But, but again, if we just kind of take a step back and try to see it through their eyes, I think the world might be a better place. And let me give this person the benefit of the doubt. What if it's literally printed in board policy, you know, with the stipulations of what they're allowed to wear in graduation? Okay, so now is the time. You all need to sit down and have a, a, a discussion about revising that policy. <laughs> right, which apparently is going to happen, according to this story. Um, and if for anybody who was wondering, like you said, shower shoes, th- this young man, um, Alexander McQueen, the student who was turned away originally, um, he was wearing black leather sneakers with white rubber soles, right? Like that's something you can you can There's look the other way about. absolutely nothing wrong with that. But, but we also have to remember what we consider professional attire or what when we were growing up, it was always wear, wear your church outfit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, times have changed very much. People are remembering that that you know you come to church as you are. God receives you as you are. How you you know if you wear a pair of jeans and tennis shoes and a t shirt to church, that does not mean you are not a Christian and you cannot worship the same. So one of the things we've always done through the years is says, oh, we've got picture day next week. Wear your church clothes. You've got to be careful with those kinds of statements and mm-hmm. and assuming what you know professional dress or church attire is. Um, because everybody's community, every you know, everyone's church, the culture is different. What, what you know, we we just all have different ideas about what that looks like. And a child being in a pair of of khakis, let's say a polo shirt, and a pair of decent looking tennis shoes. Tell me what's wrong with that? Um, to allow that child to graduate, especially graduation is going to be over in an hour. And they're probably headed to the cookout at their mom's or grandma's. Come on. Uh, the teacher that stepped in, John Butler, um, he's the gentleman who deserves to be applauded for coming up with Kudos know, the Kudos to Mr. Butler. Right. And I just want to say that there are Mr. Butlers all over this country right. serving in schools every day. Kudos to you, and you will be blessed for that. No doubt. Um, another story that uh, caught my attention this week is was actually done by uh, NBC News, and it hit um, June 6th uh, this week, and it shocked me. Okay, so this one, stick with me here, because there's, and I'm going to have to link to this article. There's a lot of details in here, but I'm going to try to to briefly summarize the, the story. There was um, about five months ago, a gentleman by the name of Robert Jones. He's 44 years old. He has a teenage son. Um, his son apparently had a little bit of a checkered past at another county in the state. He had gotten in trouble um, a few times, and they wanted a reset. So they moved to a new neighborhood, um, which was Gulf Harbors in Pasco County, Florida, with his wife and his four kids. Um, not long after he was there, I think it was about a week, uh, seven or eight police cars showed up at his door to talk about his 16-year-old son, Bobby, who apparently had issues back in Pinellas County. Um, that's where they previously lived. And they wanted to make sure that this father understood that they do things differently in Pasco County. Um, so over time, over like the next several weeks, um, they essentially, I, I'm going to go ahead and say this because I've, I've read through the whole article. They harass this family over this, this 16 year old. I mean, they go and they'll come talk to the dad. The dad will be like, all right, I guess you can come in. And then they start like searching through the house saying that they don't need a warrant because they gave them access to the house. They were digging, they were like rummaging through the kid's stuff and looking for things. They even found like a plastic bag that had traces of marijuana in it. And they, um, sent the kid to, for three weeks to juvenile detention, a judge eventually dismissed the charge due to the lack of measurable marijuana and so forth. But it's just basically this family was harassed. But what really bothers me and why we're talking about this on a school podcast is because 
this sheriff's office has been given access to student data. And I'm talking about the data and the charts that say like this child may be at risk and here's how many absences they have. And there's oh, all these- my goodness. Yeah. So that's why I, I felt like, oh, my gosh, we got to we got to let people know that this is happening. I don't think it's OK. I believe completely in the fact of using student data to, to identify an at risk kid for the school district, but it shouldn't be shared with the local sheriff's department. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely a FERPA violation. Um, Family Educational Privacy Rights Act. That is a problem because I worry about whether children are being stereotyped, if they are, you know, being identified and then going to be harassed in public. Um, Kids make mistakes at 11 and 12 years of age and, you know, it might follow them through their, uh, you know, cumulative folder within school because we, you know, we monitor those things. But to give it to the sheriff's department, to me, is sending a completely negative message about what we think about our children. And I wish that someone would, would recognize that that is just not how it should work. If you are seeking um, outside services to help support an at-risk or child that's in trouble, that needs to be handled with the consent of the parent. There should be a team of people sitting around the table um, having a discussion about best supports to help a child be successful, especially if we're looking at, you know, behaviorally uh, how we can help a child and, and and help them be successful. I am really disturbed by it. Yeah, I'm disturbed by it. I mean, the Pasco County Sheriff's Department refers to it as intelligence-led policing. Um, it's been developed over a decade. Uh, they um, are, you know, being looked at under a microscope thanks to this article and other, you know, civil liberties experts. But they look at it as, as if they're doing the right thing, right? They're their quote is, at-risk youth who are destined to a life of crime, uh, this may actually be a way for them to intervene and set them on the right path. And to me, like, maybe Which that, way? Yeah. What are you doing with the data? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's be for real. Are you mentoring in the school building? Are you um, providing different um, career opportunity, career speakers? Are you using this information to positively impact them? Or are you packing this information in files so that when they have, um, you know, a, a violation or inappropriate act to occur at school, then now, oh, red flag, this kid is definitely going to be jailed. You know, come on. we yeah. it's, That's not the path. I mean, I could maybe see an argument for the school resource officers having access to some of this information. I don't even see, I don't even see um, that. And let me explain to you why. We sure. have to understand the purpose of a school resource officer. They are not there to police children. School administrators are there to lead the culture and climate of a building and to deal with any type of positive and or negative behavior when it comes to the students in the building. Administrators are the only ones that should be issuing consequences. Okay. Now, if the consequence um, happens to be where it breaks the law, say a weapon or drugs, then an administrator involves the SRO because see an administrator would not need um, any type of, you know, uh, permission to search a child. If we have any type of doubt or wonder about a situation, we have the right to call them in our office with another certified person and make sure everything is safe because safety of the entire building is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. SROs are to make the building safe from outside um, visitors and, or if you happen to have an employee that maybe, you know, gets beside themselves. And I think that's where we get confused 
about the support that SROs should provide. And so I don't agree with that either, that yeah, their you, student information me that should was, be kept private. You're, you're right. Oh, you're absolutely right. That's a very valid point. And I mean, let's the, this whole idea of trying to identify that a child's going to do something wrong before they do something wrong. Um, I mean, this applies in the real world as well, like you and me and, and all of us that live in whatever community you live in. And I want to give you an example, right? So the data is there now to say, um, to take a software program, somebody wants to write this software and say, all right, I want to know anyone who's had two DUIs in the city of Hattiesburg, where we live. And then I want to cross-reference license plate scanners, and I want to learn the path that they drive every evening. Um, and I might just happen to sit on that roadway that I know they drive to to get from their favorite uh, watering hole to their their home. And as they pass by me and my license plate scanner pings them again, I know to pull that person over because they have two DUIs. It's 7 p.m. in the evening and they always drive this route. That data exists today. Law enforcement has those license plate scanners. It's just a matter of someone writing the software to, to connect those dots. And that's scary because you shouldn't be allowed to be, say, pulled over just because you have a history of drinking, right? Like you haven't actually committed a Correct. crime yet. You might be completely sober when they pull you over. But it's that type of thing where they go, I know this person might be a problem and I'm going to be proactively policing. But at the same time, you haven't done anything wrong yet. And that's the type of stuff that scares me. This is the same thing. Right. Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the phrase, uh, the prison pipeline or pipeline to prison? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. Right. You have already decided they're at risk. They're probably of poverty. They've had some behavior trouble in school. Could be that they were overlooked, misdiagnosed, not not uh, supported appropriately in lower grades, um, which, you know, tends to manifest in a, in a negative way once they get to middle school. Here you are already deciding that these children uh, have a future of crime ahead of them. Mm -hmm. How dare you? Right. Because it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy for the child, right? Like they start to think. I just like, want to make it plain. I'm yeah. a child that came from poverty. Mm -hmm. I'm a child who, you know, let's just, I don't have a problem with it. You know, m my mom didn't finish high school. She had me at a young age. Um, it was never easy for her. She did the absolute best that she could. And, you know, I did the best that I could as a uh, high school student, not having, you know, parents, you know, my mom was not high school educated or whatnot. And I did the best that I could. And I was able to go off to college. And, and when I went to college, I was exposed to so many other people and opportunities to where I was really able to see, oh, OK, well, I've got to do this so I can get prepared for my future. And look at me now. You right. know, I, I just don't appreciate <laughs> them deciding that someone with a background like mine has a future of crime waiting for them. And I grew up in a gang ridden area. Um, you know, it was either you're going in the military or you were tied to a gang. That's that's where I come from. And I just I, I just find it to be ludicrous. It, it is. I was shocked when I read the story. I hope more people read it. I'm going to link to it in the uh, show notes. Uh, so definitely check it out because this should not be happening. That data should not be shared with local law enforcement. It's ridiculous, in my opinion. And I feel like I'm in a pretty firm position for saying that. Um, Christina, Absolutely. Christina, let me ask you this. Um, you know, we um, actually today are going to boot up a previous interview in the show um, regarding ransomware. Cause I feel like with all the headlines regarding ransomware, uh, you know, of course dealing with the colonial pipeline that we recently had. And then, then just you hear, I think it was like a meat industry um, recently uh, was attacked um, for, with some ransomware. I feel like we need to play that interview we had uh, a while back where we talked mm -hmm. to two folks where we kind of specifically talked about what schools could be doing 
to prevent ransomware or, or maybe have your data backed up properly. So if anybody out there is kind of like, what's going on? Explain this to me. And how can we learn more? That's what today's Bright Idea is about. So uh, are you ready for it? That's awesome. Yes, I am. Our guests in today's Bright Ideas segment are two gentlemen very well versed in the world of student data as well as the security surrounding that data. We have Dane Conrad, who used to serve as the director of technology at a few different large school districts, and now he's the technical onboarding specialist at School Status. And we have our very own Russ Davis, the CEO of School Status, who has a deep understanding in the challenges that school districts all around the world face. Russ and Dane, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Hey. Um, yep, glad to be here too. We stumbled across this article in Ed Surge. And what that article article was about was it was basically saying that a cybersecurity incident strikes K through twelve schools nearly every three days. Do you guys believe that that, that is the case from your experience? Yeah, nationally or even internationally, I'm sure that's probably uh not too far off the exact point. Yeah. Russ, what do you think? Uh, I, I think I would be surprised if it wasn't more because I think a lot of it probably isn't isn't um, disclosed, I guess, openly. So I, I think about things, Dane, like a laptop getting stolen that may have had student data on it. Right. And I know that most districts don't use, you know, any kind of whole disk encryption unless they're using like a Mac or something like that because it's kind of a pain in the imaging process to deal with. Um but I'm honestly, I'm surprised it's just only every three days. I think it happens much more frequently, but is it just never makes the media. Do, do you think it's a bad idea? And I know you guys may be conflicted with your answer here, but do you think it's a bad idea for legislators to be like, school districts should be tracking and disclosing this when they think they have a data breach, they should be required to report it? Uh, I think most most law most states already have laws in the books about it that you should you know re- have reasonable disclosure that if a you know there's a breach that's occurred that almost assuredly data was accessed. Um, for instance, if somebody steals a laptop and it's encrypted with you know good encryption and a good password, I don't necessarily think that that is necessarily necessary for disclosure. Um, you know, I. I I just think it's unlikely that somebody's going to get access to that data, especially if you have like remote kill capabilities for like laptops and phones and things like that. Dane, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, as far as the legislature goes and existing laws, there's probably some regulation there already. Um, And I know I agree with what you were talking about, about data breaches not being disclosed. I was at a leadership summit in Chicago last summer. And so there were leaders from around the United States that and there was a session devoted to cybersecurity and data breaches. And I was a little bit surprised by the number of people attending. And these were from large districts, uh, super districts, if you want to call them that, who uh, replied back to the question about how do you publicize or how do you respond and let the public know. And and in more than one case, those IT professionals were saying, we don't, we chose not to disclose, we keep it quiet, don't tell the public, which I thought, um, has has some very dangerous implications going forward. Um, if something is actually used from that data breach, and then sure. it, then it's a double whammy back on the district. That not only did you not tell us, but now it's being used against us, and so there's a, some liability there. I'm sure this leads me to one of my questions. Actually, so do people even understand what type of data is at risk? Like, what what can our students' data like? What could expose them, and then actual personnel, teachers, and so forth. 
Well, I, I think the blast radius for students is actually fairly low. There's definitely more data there, but it's really, I mean, it's not terribly valuable right now, in my opinion, um, to, to anyway, third parties, because if you think about like what where most data breaches occur, they're really kind of huddled around financial crimes, right? Somebody's looking to steal your email address and password. If you reuse it on a site, they'll hack a database of another company and um, then, you know, try that on PayPal or your banking institution or whatever the case may be. And, you know, they're trying to transfer $800 in your PayPal account, right? Like, I think that is the most common occurrence. Um, You know, I think in this case, we see a lot of risk around employee data. So phishing is a real problem. In fact, if you email any school district in the U.S. just about now, whenever they reply, they'll have an external um, tag on the front of that message. And the reason they do is so that people know that this message didn't come from outside. So, for instance, even at school status, we get phishing attempts and all the time or, you know, basically impersonation where um, somebody will send a message to our chief financial officer asking her to wire money, right? And in our company, only I have that authority, right? Um, Or asking for her to send me the W-2s for all of our employees for last year. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a policy in place that that just, we just don't transmit that email over, we just don't transfer that information over email. And most school districts, I'm sure, should adopt a similar policy if they have it. But that's usually where the data breaches are occurring. So if I'm hearing you right, like as for students, I mean, unless you're, say, president of the United States, there's really not a whole lot of value into like your, your, your grades and your transcript, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it will be valuable. I think if you take, you know, the socials of students and, um, you know, you, you wait a few years, they'll be valuable. But honestly, for most school districts in the country, you're not required to give them your social. In fact, I, I don't, I wouldn't if my child were going to school because I just don't think it's a necessary indicator. Yeah, uh, Dane, what, what say you? You're closer to this than I am. Yeah, we tried to get away from putting Social Security uh, numbers for students in our SIS, Student Information System, but there are probably still districts that do that. Uh, and one of the reasons why we got away from that was because of uh, the data breach uh, possibility and, and just having that information for students. Now, the um, the richness for student information from a criminal aspect, if that social security number is there, is high though, because um, if you think about it, uh, if somebody steals my identity and they might they use my social security number, uh, typically at some point, I'll fumble upon it. So I'll see sure. information being accessed on my credit card or my debit card, mm. or I'll get credit card replies. Um, but for a student, they're not necessarily in that environment. So if a criminal gains access to a student information system that does include that does include PII information, then it can be years before they stumble upon the actual criminal use of it. So they go to apply for their first loan for a car or uh, they're applying for a job and suddenly they have bad credit score. And it's because their credit information has been generated on that fault on that theft and then it's being used criminally and and now they have to sort of recognize and uh, adjust to that 
criminal behavior. Well, let's call that pro tip number one. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're a school district, you should be checking with your, I guess, technology director and saying, are we storing social security numbers in our CIST? And if we are, why? Like, is, right. it, is there a necessity to do that? And, right. and you're saying probably not. Probably right? not, no. Okay, so uh, Russ mentioned phishing attacks. Um, that's, uh, I'm going to try to explain this to somebody like they're trying to explain it to myself, but it's basically where somebody gets an email and it's like, I need this, your password. And it looks as if it's coming from somebody important, somebody within the school district might be from your technology director. Right. But the fact is, it's it's a different address and it just has that look and they're just trying to fish, literally, right. and, and get that information. Am I understanding well, this right? The, that's correct. And, and a good example would be if the most recent one is just using, they'll register a domain that has similar characteristics. So... Um, it'll be Russ at schoolstatus.com, but the O's are zeros, right? Mm -hmm. So you get this email and you kind of look at the header and yeah, it looks close enough. And, you know, you're kind of wondering, do I respond? This is my boss, you know, and he's telling me to do this right away. Um, like we get, we get requests and people to say, Hey, this is Russ, go to this store and buy gift cards and send me the numbers because I want to send it to someone. Right. Like those are usually pretty good red flags. But in the moment when, you know, it's not uncommon for us to use a gift card as a giveaway at a trade show. So if they hit the trade show person, which they have before, right. then they may be likely to do that. It's all about user education. And um, I want to hit on something that Dane talked about. Dane said that they um, got rid of social security numbers and their sis that the district was from. That is a good risk mitigation strategy. So that like there's some information that schools are allowed to disclose under FERPA, uh, directory information, um, what student, the student's name, what grade they're in, that sort of thing are generally allowable unless a parent opts out under directory information. Where they live and stuff like that generally isn't. But if something gets out and you say, look, this is what they got was directory information only, and that's already publicly available, that's a pretty good public narrative as opposed to they got directory information and that student social and birthday, right? Like birthday. Yeah. You're definitely going to have to track, but the social, we're not saying don't keep their social. We're saying, keep it in the vault, right? Don't put it in electronic form. You know, most every school has a vault, has a secure room that has a sign in and sign out procedure. And it's watched fairly closely. Um, and it's usually that student's cumulative folder and that sort of thing. Put it in there. Um, that's one of those things where going like low tech can actually reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Dane, to prevent phishing, I think Russ said it's user education. Did you guys like frequently send out emails reminding employees like watch out for these things? Yeah, there's some there's some great companies that uh, districts are generally aware of. One of those um, that we would get uh, solicitation emails from, and then actually followed up and and used occasionally was no before no before dot com, uh, and they'll they'll even but besides supplying. Uh, flyers and PDFs that you can pass out or electronically send out to try to educate users about phishing. Um, they'll also run phishing uh, attacks, more or less. So, oh, like basically like testing the system. Yes, exactly. Ah, so, that's cool. That's cool. So you sent you you um, work with them and they'll prepare like a phishing email and they'll send it to your users and then you'll get uh, statistics back about how many people clicked on the link. How did you know who, like in your district, like did they, so you could go educate that person on a one-on-one basis? Yes. It, was it ever a surprise to you or was it kind of the no, usual suspects? It's, it's never a surprise because it runs the gamut. Uh, I mean, uh, we try to educate, but they're the general public. I mean, it's no, there's been tech directors I know that have 
uh, accidentally given uh, data uh, or information out uh, innocuously. Uh, never was in, uh, the type of data that could hurt anybody, but uh, you have foibles all the time. So they're just as much, even your best educated user can accidentally click on something occasionally. It happens to everybody, right? So yeah. recently, I'll give you an example. I work in this space, right? I have a, a, a vulnerability uh, management company that basically scans perim- district perimeters looking for security flaws, things like that that are known. And recently I was staying in a hotel and I got a call at 11 o'clock at night and it was from the phone on my desk at the hotel. And they said, Hey, this is the front desk. There's something with your credit card. We don't have the CVV right. And they basically teased out all the information on my credit card piece by piece. Mm-hmm. Very apologetic, very nice, you know, basically said they were going to credit me the night back. And then I hung up the phone and was like, oh, no. Yeah. So I called the, I called the front desk and they were like, no, absolutely not. You just got and scammed. It turned, I, I just got scammed. So I immediately called and canceled my credit card. And they, of course, American Express issued a new one. It's my corporate card, which is real pain in the behind if, if you're a company. And so, you know, it can happen literally to anybody. That was the first time I was like, oh, like I, it was late. I, you know, yeah. like my, my, you know, kind of. Spidey sense wasn't going off because I was woken from a dead sleep. Well, the fact that and, it wasn't um, in an email too, you got, you got uh, approached like person to person. That yeah. can, you know. It was. And the person was very nice and there was crowd noise in the background uh-huh. and they sounded like they were downstairs in the lobby. I mean, I'm just, you know, it was really, wow. it was really good, but very, they got me cold. Very and, nuanced. You, know, you read about this stuff and I knew about that. You know, I knew about that vulnerability and it was piece by piece by piece. And of course, you know, I reported it to the front desk and, you know, they had a policy against transferring people through. And so there was an investigation going on. It's still pending. It was in Memphis at a very popular hotel in Memphis. And um, anyway, it was just, it was a surprise to me. And that was the moment you want to talk about developing empathy, right? That right. develops instant empathy. You're like, oh, this could happen to anybody. I'm guessing that hotel had ducks. Is, is I'm gonna go they, the Yeah, it is a very popular hotel <laughs> yeah. that may have ducks. Yeah. Right. Um, so the Ed Surge article mentions uh, a denial of service um, attack. Is that just basically clogging up your website? What, what do they mean by that? It's clogging up the network. So I know the article mentions that, and, and I remember when it happened, or one like it, that a student... Uh, and the story that I read about was during the spring assessment window, and they did not want to take the state assessments. Oh, wow. So this guy, the young student, uh, engineered a denial of service attack against the school network. And so during the assessment window, suddenly, because a lot of these assessments are online now, and they depend on some kind of network connection out to the internet. And when that denial of service attack happened, it just flooded the network so that online assessments couldn't reach out and get and reply back. So for all intent and purposes, he shut down testing for that day. So this one's not really doing damage to the network, but it is slowing things down and it's causing a major hiccup. But if I remember right, even a few years ago, I think the FBI had had their website, FBI.gov, actually hit with a, is it called a DNS? Is that right? A, a DDoS, DDoS. Okay, DDoS. And where basically people just flooded the website, so to speak, so no one could access the homepage. Right. But the headline that's, was the FBI's website was hacked. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's probably not, I mean, what districts are quick to say in that situation is that there's really no disclosure of information. They'll say the firewall acted exactly as it should. And usually what they do is that they'll, they'll get the, not the IP address of the website because they're smarter than that. Now they know that the website is usually hosted by some third party and it's usually behind a service like Cloudflare, which helps mitigate that risk. 
but they'll get the actual IP address. They'll do like uh, what is my IP address.com and they'll get their IP address. And that way they know the actual IP address of the router and they'll just send junk traffic to it. And even if that router is set up not to respond to that junk traffic, there is still a rule there that has to be processed, a deny rule. And if you send, you know, not hundreds, but millions of these a second, it'll overwhelm almost any router that's out there. And so that's really when your choice of ISP becomes really important. If you're looking for like a bargain basement ISP, just the cheapest price for bandwidth, bandwidth is bandwidth is bandwidth. That's not always the case. Often um, these, your like ISP, who you buy your internet from often has like intrusion prevention and detection systems. And so truly they should be able to stop it on the upstream level and um, sometimes it's they're really very difficult to to stop because they're it's just the D and DDoS is just the first D is distributed right mm-hmm. so it's coming from all over the place and it's like like uh, if you ever are on Reddit or one of those sites and you go to click on a website and it's down it's basically DDoSing that site there are you know whereas that website is, traffic. is yeah that's right that website's designed to have a thousand people access it at any given time. And all of a sudden, 100,000 people access it because it hits the front page of Reddit. It's a very similar thing that happens in a school district. But it's not necessarily a data disclosure, which is what most people think about. So this one's probably not – it can happen. Is there any really safeguards? But it's nothing major to worry about. Is there anything you can do to really prevent it other than have a good ISP? And and for those that don't know, ISP is Internet Service Provider, right? Yeah, you need a good Internet Service Provider. You need to have your firewall tightened up. Um, also denial of service attacks can occur from the inside. And that's kind of what I have a company called school scan and we scan that stuff internally as well. But that's really where your biggest risk profile. Yeah. You're going to get DDoS on the outside. You have a firewall there, but what happens when somebody's inside your firewall, right? How do you protect against it? Then you have to start doing like switch access control lists. I mean, there's a bunch of like technical stuff you can do, but you really need to understand the nature of the risk and limit access um, down to like as far as far away from your core network as you possibly can. You need to be pushing the risk out there and risk detection out there. Does that make sense? Like you don't want you don't want a student to be able to log on to your network and get the same privilege as your accounting department, for instance. It is, like they really never need access to your accounting server. That's is, a good example. Is school stand basically like you, you guys are are doing audits for the district? Is that we, we do audits as a portion of it, but the majority of it's automated. So here's the deal. Every day, thousands of pieces of software, we discover, like not when I say we, I mean the internet at large discovers security flaws. And this software is used everywhere. So like, for instance, the Equifax, uh, everybody's aware like of the Equifax disclosure, right? right. Where they disclose the credit profiles of million, almost everybody in the US who had one, right? And that wasn't due to somebody at Equifax um, you know, copying that on a flash drive and taking it out of their place. They have protections against that. It was because there was a piece of software that was used on their on their back end that happened to be forward facing, meaning people could access it from the internet. And there was a known vulnerability that had been fixed years before. But because they were not scanning for that vulnerability or had they actually in their case they did scan for it and just ignored it. Then somebody was able to exploit it and get and override the security mechanisms built into that software. And this happens every single day. And so what SchoolScan does is we just kind of scan the perimeter of the network, the firewall, the biggest pieces of equipment for these known vulnerabilities. And we disclose those um, so that people can fix them. And often it's just a matter of like, Dane, how many dev- devices did you have in your school that you were responsible for? Thousands. Thousands, right? It's overwhelming, what were the, right? Yeah. 
yeah, what are the chances of you getting good patch management on every single one of those devices? Uh, pretty low. <laughs> and, and so I want, I want everyone every listening, single one. when you say like, I just want everyone to understand, I'm going to try to bring this down a little bit. When you, you're saying Sorry. patch management, you're meaning like, all right, so people know that these vulnerabilities are out there. And as a technology director, it's kind of your responsibility to, to no, go it's to, absolutely our responsibility it, to go to yeah, it's 100% your, yeah. your job. Okay. So you're supposed to go to thousands of devices and update them essentially, well, right? That's why it's really important to have enterprise management. So the majority of those devices for us have been Chromebooks and Google has a really strong admin console so that I can easily manage those users can easily manage those devices. Uh, the real uh, honeypots for you know these data breaches though a lot of times is a server based device. Yep. And those aren't as as um, many in most districts. So we might have ten to twelve servers uh, and along let's say a uh, hundred network devices, routers and switches, and firewalls and all that. So um, you know thousands of devices do exist, but really generally we're really concerned about that core uh, server and routing and switching environment. Um, but it's important to have, Russ has mentioned firewalls already, the the newer types of firewalls, you know, we're notorious in education for using something until it just dies. Mm -hmm. But um, we there's so much technology available in the, the newer firewalls that allow you to get insights into uh, end-user traffic. So those devices that you're managing that are so many, um, you can break up that traffic and really get insight into where it's coming from internally and externally and then what kind of traffic it is and then react to it. So that's really important in addition to the the scanning that, that Russ is talking about. So Russ, your, your product, once it finds a vulnerability, d does it give the end user or your customer the opportunity to right there in the report, click on it and patch it, or at least read about what the vulnerability is? Yeah, absolutely. They can read about what it is, and it has actually a section on, here's what to do to patch that piece of software. And the scary part is when you look at one and it goes, there's no fix for this, right? Yeah. Like, this software has been deprecated, meaning that it's no longer supported. So you need to stop using that software. Well, what if that piece of software is running our accounting server, right? right? You can't stop yeah. using it. What do you do then? And so that's why, like, in education, a lot of the, like, whenever I was a technology director back in, like, 2001 through 2003, four, um, we, like, had, like, servers everywhere, right? And we would buy software. We'd put it on those servers. You know, we really didn't do a good job of patch management, meaning, like, keeping that software up to date because there weren't a lot of good solutions out there. And we ran a big Windows um, network. And so you'd have something like... Um, I forgot what the forgot what it was called, like Red Alert or something like that. You'd have a worm that would make its way through our network, and we just really couldn't stop it. And you know, it was really a, a bad time. Well, now most modern school districts um, work to keep as much stuff as they can in the cloud. Like they're not managing email servers. Probably ninety percent of the districts now either use Office three sixty five or Google Mail as their mail platform, and they don't have a mail server. And so Google's already doing some things or Office 365 is already doing some things for you there. The more that you can push into the cloud, the better it is from a patch management perspective because you're hoping that vendor's doing their job, but it doesn't necessarily decrease your risk. In fact, I think it, and sometimes it increases your risk because you have more hands that, you know, you have, instead of dealing with one security policy within a district, 
you may be dealing with 50 or 60 security pro- security policies at the, the district level. And the truth is, is that most districts just don't know how to contain that risk and they don't even track the security policies. Like there are pieces of software in use for education today that I can name, but I don't want to get sued. Right. Um, that are just terrible pieces of software that have known vulnerabilities and are very buggy. And, but they're cheap and no one's going to stop using them anytime soon. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and let me ask this and, and probably a better question for Dane. Like, is this too big of an undertaking for school districts? Like, I mean, when you go to these conferences, are, are your colleagues saying, you know, like, we don't know what we're doing? Well, I mean, typically in the education environment, those staffs are smaller than they need to be. Uh, so your ratio of a, a technician um, or even a network administrator to the number of devices uh, varies from school district to school district uh, and from state to state. But I think the general trend is that most are understaffed. So you do have uh, fewer people with their hands on the equipment or their hands in systems that are being managed or even aware of, you know, reporting that might come from some of the, the security devices that you might and systems that you put in place. Um, so that's always a challenge. And you've got uh, network administrators. They're also systems analysts. So they are maintaining virtual servers and servers, uh, physical servers. So uh, generally everybody's overtaxed, but it is still something that falls at the foot of the director of technology. And it's something they have to be aware of and try to, as Russ said earlier, mitigate as much as possible. The key isn't complete containment. Okay, that is impossible. You cannot completely contain your security risk. That is not possible. The the this gold standard is mitigation. There's no like IPS, like which is intrusion prevention system and IDS, which is intrusion detection system. Like those things will help, but they will not ultimately make you 100 percent secure and no product will and no person will. You just have to mitigate that risk as much as reasonable. Like, hey, if you want to get rid of security risk in a school district, why don't we just eliminate all computers, right? It's an impossible job um, to secure risk 100%, but it is completely attainable to mitigate the risk to an extent that is reasonable, right? That everybody would understand, like, this is the, like, if something happens, these are the steps that we took, and this is the things that we had in place. Where people run afoul, honestly, and I don't want to, like, pontificate here, is that a lack of clear policy? Like, what happens when there is a breach? What do we do, mm-hmm. right? Because often people make it worse and worse. Like they're trying to fix it themselves. Like if you, like if a server, there's a thing called CryptoLocker, right? Where if you run a, a malicious app on a server, or if you have admin rights in your network, it'll quietly go through and encrypt your server completely. And it actually happened to a school district here in Mississippi. Um, it'll completely encrypt that server and it will basically hold you rants. Like it'll say, Hey, send, you know, $10,000 to this Bitcoin address. Is, is this or, ransomware? Is this what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, this is yeah. ransomware, like okay. crypto locker, ransomware type stuff. And so like, what do you do? Well, fixing it may make it way worse. First of all, mitigate the risk by disconnecting that device from the network. And sometimes it's a matter of pulling the plug on everything. Like stop, like this is cancer. Let's, let's cut it off right now. And let's, bring up devices in a controlled environment one by one and seeing if they're infected and then, you know, kind of isolate the risk and contain it before it infects our entire network. The problem is, is that most people don't have any kind of detection mechanism. And until somebody writes in, it's like, Hey, I can't access any of my word files. Then you go to that server and you see the crypto locker 
uh, or the ransomware dot text file in that folder saying, send me money or this file's gone forever. And, you know, that's when like having a good backup process, like if you could just say, we're not paying the ransom, we're going to restore from last night's backup. Right. That's one thing. But if you don't have those policies and procedures to ensure you're getting a good backup every night, you're screwed. There's no good way other than paying paying them off. Is that something you guys did, Dane? Did you like constantly back stuff up? Or, and if you don't feel comfortable answering that, that's fine. But. <laughs> yeah. So here's some exposure mitigation. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, uh, you may not tell people who are listening to the podcast how vulnerable or invulnerable some school districts are in Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I think generally most districts uh, certainly back up, have some kind of backup plan. Uh, the joke has always been a backup plan is only as good as your restore plan. So you can have all the sure. backups you want, but if you can't restore from them, and many times those aren't tested. Um, so even if you have a backup plan, then you still need to restore something every once in a while just to make sure it works. Mm-hmm. Um, along those lines, um, I was at a meeting uh, at Metis, which is the Mississippi Educational and Technology Innovation Symposium. It's put on by the Mississippi Department of Education a few years ago. And they invited a group um, that's really focused on this kind of policy creation, and it's called the uh, Privacy Technical Assistance Center. So it's PTAC. PTAC, all right. Formally, and so this group came in and ran scenarios with the with the conference participants about data breaches, um, and made this the personnel in the in the conference think about in their district. Um, how would you respond? You know, and, and each scenario was different variations on a data breach, whether it was all the HR information or if it was student information or maybe it was just a, a group of documents that were stored in a cloud, a Google Cloud. Yeah, so basically account. role-playing with, exactly. with data. But, but they're a resource that's available for districts to go to the site studentprivacy.ed.gov and they will uh, work with you uh, one-on-one at times, you know, if you want that. But also, certainly, if you're a person who, you know, does create conference sessions or something like that, it's a good group and it's a great resource to sort of make school districts uh, go through those scenarios, develop their response mechanisms, and, and really have something in place and know what to do when something happens. Right. I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours. And, and it, here's what I want. If somebody's listening to this and they want more of this, like, please email us and let us know. And we will do more. We will dive deeper into all these topics. I mean, I think today we've kind of covered the denial of service, the phishing. We've touched on the ransomware a little bit. We've we've thrown out a few tips and given a few resources, but but we can go deeper. So let us know if that's something that you want. I still want to get you both in on our pop quiz because you guys are our guest today. Sure. And um, we're going to do it quickly since there's two of, two of you here. But are you all ready? Do the pop quiz? Yes, let's go. All right. Let's do it. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Literature. Russ. I agree. Literature. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I'll, I'll take this with soft skills. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I think that there is a real problem with, with folks that keep their face in a screen all day and they, they lack some soft skills. Um you know, how to, how to handle social situations, you know, just, I think that that is something that's really, really lacking these days. True. Yeah. Agree. All right. What does every child deserve? Freedom. Uh, a shot at a good education. I mean, truly like they deserve a quality education. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, I'll, I'll take respect. 
time. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Um, I think that health. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think that honestly, um, educators are not considered. I mean, a lot of these folks have master's degrees, and they're not considered professionals. They're considered, you know, these guys get, you know, two two months off in the summer. And I think that that is incredibly dangerous to our our nation and education in general. Yeah, and that's exactly where my mental health concept comes from. The <laughs> right. fact that they don't get respect, that there's outside pressures put on the classroom all the time. And their uh, freedom to teach the way they would like to teach is taken away. What's, yep. the, what's the best gift to give an educator? Practically gift cards. <laughs> uh, yeah, for school supplies and, and things like that. And I'm going to go with the somewhat impractical, which is time. Um, I think that time is the number one thing that you can give someone. And a lot of that just comes from what Dane talked about, which is like you, if you're, if you're an administrator in a school district, it is your job to advocate for your staff. And when something is unreasonable or is going to add an unreasonable burden to them, you say, no, unless I'm ordered to, I'm just not going to do that. Here's why. And I think that that takes a lot of guts, but I think it's, these are my peeps, right? These are the people that you know, I advocate for, this is my crew and I'm going to protect them. Which teacher changed your life? 11th grade English teacher. You want to say the name? Uh, Bobby Odom. Warren Central High uh, School. What did, what did Bobby Odom do for you that, that changed things? Um, sort of was the first person that held us accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Russ, how about you? Uh, two people. Unfortunately, I have to like split the answer. But fortunately for me, um, my mentor growing up was a teacher named Steve Sill. He was my eighth grade science or seventh grade science teacher. And he got me into computers in a big way, like programming, true programming. He gave me, I guess, the statute of limitations has passed, but he gave me copies of like programming software, like Visual Basic. <laughs> and I learned how to program at a young age. And then secondarily, uh, a guy named George Wade, who passed away, unfortunately, about uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, who gave me a chance to be the network guy for our school district. And he went out and fixed computers while I did the network. And I was 16. Wow. And without that contribution, there is zero probability that I would have this company and do what I'm doing today. That's cool. Um, yeah. Last question, Dane, pen or pencil? Uh, pen all the time. Russ, how about you? Pencil. Everybody makes mistakes. And, and since since I do have two computer guys, pen or pencil over computer, or does computer went out? Uh, it depends on the situation. I've gotten to the point now where I have a notebook that I keep a lot of notes in, just because it's quicker and easier. And I also so, doodle. Like you, yeah, you physically draw yeah. into a notebook. I also doodle and draw during meetings a lot of times. It's just a preoccupation. <laughs> Thank you, Dane. Russ, yes. don't you do the same thing? <laughs> don't you also walk around with a notebook? I absolutely walk around with a notebook. And where I learned that from when I worked at the State Department, um, I, I learned it from a guy named Steve Hebler. And you could go back at any point in his career and find what he was working on and the notes from that. And let me tell you, it saves my behind at least once a quarter where I can go back and reference a time and date that something happened. And so whenever I'm done with a notebook, I use a, I use a very specific notebook, spiral bound at the top. And at the end of it, I write the dates um, for the rep, for the range on that book, and then I save it so that if I need to go back and see what happened on a day, I can go back and look at the notes. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. That's absolutely right. <laughs> All right, guys, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. It was a, a fantastic interview. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. Right. See ya. That 
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.